Now, in studio, your lending expert, family man, and servant leader, who's committed to honoring and empowering San Diego's servant leaders to rise up. Your host of Rise Up Radio, James Carmody. Welcome, folks. You are listening to Rise Up Radio. I'm your host, James Carmody. Thank you so much for tuning in for another exciting episode. This is episode 126. We are motoring through our third year. Had over 300 guests on the show, and it's all in thanks to you, our listeners. The love and support for Rise Up Radio and the Rise Up Network is just inspiring uh, to Jennifer and I, and it's just an honor and a privilege to share these stories week in, week out, and you're following us online. Thanks for all the love on social media, Facebook, Instagram, online at sdriseup.com. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, We have a very exciting show. I think these two gentlemen that are going to be on today, we've been trying to track them down for six months to get them on the show as they are in very high demand. Um, And our first guest is the chief operating officer at Team Rubicon, and we're going to explore Team Rubicon and get into this. And really, Rubicon is one of the largest global impact nonprofits in the world. RJ LaCruz, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, James. Absolutely. So we're going to get into Rubicon and all the exciting things that you guys are doing globally, you know. But first of all, Art, what's your background? Gosh, you know, I'm, I'm a guy from Minnesota who found his way to, to SoCal uh, along the journey. Uh, you know, went to the Naval Academy, served in the Navy for 22 and a half years, retired in 2013 and went into the business world. Did about uh, two and a half years there, and I like to say that uh, at that point in time, the CEO of Team Rubicon, uh, Jake Wood, kind of rescued me and brought me into the organization um, to help you know build a, build a great organization that could have impact around the world. And I've been there for roughly two and a half years now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So Naval Academy grad, smart fella. Uh, barely a Naval Academy grad, so not a really smart fellow, but just smart enough, I guess, would be a better way to say it. Well, that's all you need. <laughs> that's you, right. You don't need much more than that. Yeah. Um, and how many years did you serve in the Navy? I was served in the Navy for 22 and a half years. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And what were some of the places you were stationed? Gosh, you know, uh, myself and my wife, who is also uh, a Navy veteran, uh, okay. we moved 13 times in those 22 and a half years. So, you know... Virginia Beach in Oceana, yep. spent some time in Central California, Japan, um, Nevada, Tennessee. Um, so quite a few moves uh, over that journey, and every one of them was great. Wow. So obviously, you know, vast experience with the Navy, seen a lot of places. You get out into the business world in 2013. You know, what was what was your transition and your first experience like? Gosh, you know, my transition, frankly, was was I think uh, pretty good. One of the yeah. fortunate things I had in my in my journey in the military was I actually got pulled out for one year, um, and I became a Secretary of Defense corporate fellow. Okay. Um, so I reported what is this. That? Well, Secretary I, of Defense corporate. Yeah. Fellow. So they pulled me out. There were twelve of us across DOD senior officers that yep. got pulled out of our out of uniform and sent to Fortune one hundred, Fortune five hundred com- companies across of the nation, um, and we were there to be censors and and try to bring back best practices of how things were done outside of the military. So I ended up at McKinsey and I wore the hat of a a consultant for a year. I went through their training, Mm -hmm. became an associate uh, and brought that back to the Navy. So I had a taste, I think, while I was in uniform of what was possible outside. And that became a really big influence in shaping how I landed. Um, And I ended up, you know, going into contracting afterwards a background in strategy and plans, business development, um, and it worked out really well. And I think for me personally, what worked out well is the person who I worked for really had a lens, not just in what I could give, but also what he could give to me and what the Mm. organization could give to me. So I like to kind of talk about it as skill spikes and skill troughs. I had skill spikes and skill, skill troughs. spikes like and skill that. troughs. Okay. Yeah. So I had some things that I could, I could walk into that interview and say, you know, I can definitely do this. I can give you leadership, decision-making organizational, um, effectiveness, you know, mentoring. Um, but I'd really like to learn about this. And those were kind of the skill troughs and, mm-hmm. you know, to, to the organization and my mentors credit, uh, they delivered in every respect. And that's really what allowed me to make the jump uh, to Team Rubicon and be someone who could contribute in this this organization. Wow. And share with our listeners, you know, 
Team Rubicon? You know, some people are familiar with it, some are not. You know, how long has Team Rubicon been in existence, and what's the mission? Yeah, so Team Rubicon is a disaster response organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was founded in 2010 by two Marines um, after the earthquake in Haiti. Uh, mm-hmm. They started with eight people in that first mission. And in that time, um, since 2010 and the eight years that have transpired, it's grown to 81,000 volunteers now. Wow, 81,000 uh, 81, volunteers. 81,000 volunteers. That's bigger than a lot of towns in the U.S. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really neat. And our hope yeah. is not just be as big as a town, but be in as many towns as possible. And impactful. Yeah, because if we've found that if we can activate these people and have this um, sense of community and purpose and identity, um, we're able to help people on their worst days. So at our core, we're a disaster response and a, a rebuild organization. We go in the wake of a natural disaster. We try to alleviate human suffering as quickly as possible and do it as effectively as we can. Um, you know, and a lot of people seem to think, or, you know, there's this misnomer that we are a veteran service organization. So, um, and we like to say the veterans aren't the object of our mission. They're the agent for our mission. So mm. what we do is we have a, you know, out of those 80,000, 81,000 volunteers, uh, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80% of them are veterans. And each of yeah. these veterans has these unique experiences, educations, uh, education, um, and they've, they've just, they're, they're this hidden capacity, these 21.1 million veterans across the country. Our job is to unlock that, all of that, and be able to use it to alleviate human suffering. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's a brilliant business model and a brilliant idea. You know, when you think of the military and the skill set that you are taught, you know, uh, across all branches of the military, being able to come back and pull on those skill sets through Team Rubicon is genius. Yeah, you know, we've talked to some some pretty interesting, you know, people from venture capitalists to business people. And, you know, a lot of people say this is, you know, to some extent, like the gig, gig economy, you know, it's the empty car um, right. that could be generating revenue or it's the, uh, you know, the apartment that's empty because you're on vacation that could could be used in a different manner. So the veterans yeah. are there. I think the other component that's really important to understand, it's not just about the skills the veterans have. Because mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people think when they, when they come to volunteer for an organization, you know, I'm not a logistician, so how can I add in that value? Our obligation is to make sure that these veterans in providing the one thing we know we can't you know, buy and probably the most valuable commodity that everybody has in these modern times, which is time, Right. We have to make sure that they can come to this organization, give the skills they have or what they want, yeah. and be able to have an outcome that's meaningful for them. You know, I like to think of it as a, a marketplace. It's like the farmer's market, you know, in downtown San Diego. People come there to sell goods. People go there to buy goods. And if we curate this in the right manner, our volunteers come and say, I've got this gift to give, and I get value out of it. I feel like I've impacted a community. I'm personally fulfilled. I've made a difference in the world. Our donors come in and say, you know, we'd love for this dollar to be something bigger than a dollar, so we have to curate it in a manner that makes sense. And obviously, our biggest customer are the survivors and communities. Yeah. And we want those communities to say, thank God Team Rubicon was here. They had incredible impact. They're great people, uh, and they've taught us something, you know, that'll make us more resilient the next time a storm comes through. Yeah. Share with our listeners, Art, you know, some of the bigger stories, you know, over these last eight years, what are some of the bigger stories that you guys have taken on and, and, and made an impact with? Yeah, you know, this, the uh, you could walk through, I, I guess, any startup, and we like to think of ourselves as a startup, um, these points of inflection from... Mm-hmm. You know, the tornadoes in Moore, Oklahoma, to a typhoon in the Philippines, to probably the, the best example is the series of hurricanes um, that struck, you know, the U.S. and Puerto Rico and the Caribbean last year, um, yeah. Harvey, Irma, and Maria. Um, that point of inflection is really, for an organization like ourselves, it's an opportunity to be able to um, apply the capabilities, which is what you can do, and the capacity, which is the number of volunteers you've built around the country, and be able to have impact. So um, that allowed us to put 2,000 people in Houston to help people muck out their homes, which is essentially gutting out anything that's wet inside the house so mold doesn't take over. You can stabilize yeah. their lives, make sure that environment's safe. Um, and that unlocked 
the ability to do what we trained for years to be able to do. The other thing it allowed us to do is actually build a new capability. So we said, you know what, you know, we've, we spent all this time, um, taking people's belongings and bringing them to the curb where they get thrown away. You know, they're water soaked photo albums and furniture. Um, And we made a commitment. We said, let's learn how to rebuild homes. Um, Mm. So we trained a cadre of veterans. We said, you've never built a home, but we're going to teach you how to do it. And we started rebuilding homes. And that gives us the ability to help people not take their lives to the curb, but pull them off the curb and bring them back into their home. So it's been really special. These points of inflection prove that you can do what you've trained to do and lots of times provide opportunity to grow. Wow. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm moved. I'm, I'm blown away by the, the impact and what you guys have taken on in, in your reach. You know, I mean, to have 81,000 volunteers and be at the size and the capacity that you guys are at, having started by, you know, two Marines in 2010 with really eight guys volunteering in the wake of Haiti, and fast forward to 2018, you now have 81,000 people volunteering, almost 80% of which are veterans, which, you know, we talked about pulling on that skill set, um, you know, to fulfill on these missions. I think it's just fantastic. Um, unfortunately, we're going to take a short break. Folks, you're listening to Rise Up Radio. Stick around. We'll be back in a few. Whether you explore your national forests and grasslands by car, motorcycle, four-wheel drive, or by an all-terrain vehicle, please remember that all-terrain travel doesn't mean all-terrain. Forest Service land managers have recently created detailed maps to show off-highway vehicle enthusiasts and others where they may legally operate motor vehicles. Remember to travel only on routes designated as open to motor vehicles, as shown on motor vehicle use maps available at Forest Service offices or by visiting respectedaccess.org. Click on the Motor Vehicle Maps link located on the home page. Follow these motor vehicle use maps to help keep national forests and grasslands in a healthy condition and to maintain public access to these beautiful backcountry landscapes. This message is brought to you by the nonprofit organization Tread Lightly, the USDA Forest Service, and this station, who remind you that respected access is open access. AM 1170, the answer. Welcome back. You are listening to Rise Up Radio. I'm your host, James Carmody. Thank you so much for tuning in and following us online on Facebook, Instagram, social media, as well as our website at sdriseup.com. We are motoring through our third year. This is episode 126. In studio with me is Art De La Cruz. Art's the chief operating officer at Team Rubicon. And Team Rubicon is a disaster response organization. And their mission is to alleviate human suffering in the wake of natural disasters. And they've been around since 2010. They have 81,000 volunteers these guys are making an impact, and they're obviously doing something right. All right, welcome back. Great to be be back. Absolutely. So, I understand recently, you know, you were certified by the World Health Organization. That's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a big deal, or it's a. I guess we like to think of it as a logical stepping stone um, okay. for a mission in an organization, and to some extent, a return back to our roots. Um, you know, that first operation in Haiti was actually a medical mission. Uh. You know, at that point in time domestically, you know, trying to provide medical services. We've got generally great medical services. Um, so in licensing, you know, requirements and things like that, but on the global stage, there's a lot to be done. And one of the things that the world health organization has started, and we were fortunate to be the first actual nonprofit in North America to be certified as a world health organization, EMT one, um, is they're looking to generate standards. Um, and really these standards that they're they, they asked us to be able to prove were about being able to sustain the teams that we brought into a country, being able to deliver aid in a meaningful manner, making sure that the people that we brought had genuine and licensed skills to be able to provide care. Um, and it's one of those things you never really think about. You know, immediately after a disaster, you believe it's time to go and help, and you rally people and you send them. And if you can't generate your own water, if you can't get rid of your trash, if you can't take care of the medical waste, you actually become a burden and a liability to the system. Um, so these yeah, standards really as they're built, yeah, 
yeah, they, they really help to make sure that you don't just create lift, you know, to use the airplane analogy, uh, you, you create lift, but you don't generate a ton of drag. You, don't you have to be able drag, to go. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a real honor and it's a, you know, to get to the point from the earlier segment, it's just one of those ways to activate the skills that veterans get out of the military and you pair it up with their continued desire to serve and it becomes a recipe for success. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this. It's you know, it's almost like a gig economy. I mean, you have over twenty million veterans in this country that have this unique skill set that civilians like myself and other folks just don't have. And it's like they have this innate capacity to serve and in, in, in propensity towards service. And you guys are tapping into that in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, we like to say they're built to serve, and yeah. you know, we do a lot of surveys on the front side when they, they come to volunteer and after sure. each operation. And the thing that really resonates is, is for veterans and first responders is they generally are looking for three things. They're looking for community. They want to be around people that have similar experiences. You know, they want to be next to the person they went through boot camp with. Um, they want identity. Um, mm. You know, they want, so that we call our volunteers gray shirts. So you've got this, this organization that captures the culture and the meaning and the mission um, and it aligns these people as a group or as an organization or as a tribe, as we like to call ourselves. Yeah. Um, and then it's um, purpose. You know, the mission is is noble and it allows you again to take what you have and whatever those gifts are and apply them in a manner that helps people on their worst day. It's fantastic. I, I want to get back to, you know, some of the the missions that you guys have taken on. One that you mentioned before we got on the show was serving refugees coming through Greece. Can you share with our listeners, you know, what that was like? Yeah. Um, so we, we said, you know, this is, this is a tough job and we had the opportunity to serve uh, refugees in Greece and it was kind of a long shot and we decided we were going to do it. We, we had, had the funding to be able to do it. We believed we had the resources and from a human capital standpoint yeah. to be able to get them out there and, you know, we took a bet our, on ourselves and set this thing up and ran it for eight months. Uh, we were cycling through volunteers every, you know, two weeks. We had to learn, you know, things on the fly, how to build an electronic health record system, for example, how to, how to, um, how to comply with EU standards for reporting, how to maintain mm. privacy, how to get supply lines, how to lodge our, our volunteers. All of those things became, again, stepping stones. Um, as we did this, ultimately, our decision was kind of factored on a couple of different things. Are we having impact? And we were able to say, yes, we were definitely making a difference. Do we have enough people and supplies to be able to do that? And is it cost effective? Uh, in the end, we ended up turning that over to another nonprofit that continued the services that, that we'd launched. And it became a big pivotal point of you know our certification in the World Health Organization. Every operation is a learning opportunity. It's a source of continual improvement. It's a source of identifying talent uh, and training necessary to bring the rest of the people up to speed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I can't think of a, a better population of people than Marines and sailors to go in and say, you know what, we're going to duplicate our efforts that we had over during war times. And we're going to go and we're going to set up a base. We're going to set up operations. We're going to set up personnel, HR policies and procedures We've got this machine now up and running. Here you go, next entity. You take it over and run it. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the, I think the the other component of it is, you know, you br you have to bring in the right people yeah. outside of the military. I think it would be myopic for us to think that the military can solve all of the solutions in the best way. We like to think that we bring the best things out of the military and kind of cull out the things you don't like. So we've had a lot of. Um, real benefits from working closely with the emergency uh, response organizations, firemen, police officers, um, you know, first responders, because they really have the standards and the process and the context in the local communities that allow us to work more seamlessly as we go in. And it's been a bumpy road. I mean, I'm sure we've ruffled feathers as we've gone into towns and said, you know, here's who we are. But our hope is that as we grow you know, we become an organization that's more broadly welcomed, which we're finding, you know, quite, you know, pretty much as a general rule. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I suspect your success and rapid growth has been around your people, your leadership, how you set the organization up, how you're treating people in your culture. I know that, you know, recently named by Inc. Magazine, best places to work in 2018 by Inc. Magazine. 
Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was a real honor. And, you know, so that, that was focused on our full-time employees, you know, yeah. so we really spend a lot of time on culture because ultimately your people, the alignment with the mission, a feeling of contributing to something, you know, greater. And it's not just about just giving, it's also getting. So on the value proposition, we have to deliver on that front. And I think one of the more interesting stories that's often masked is the real horsepower behind our organization is our volunteers. Um, 90% of our operations are planned, led, and executed by volunteers. And one of the interesting things that uh, the CEO and myself always reflect on is, you know, we had this, in our strategy, we expected that we were going to scale. And as we were talking about scaling, we, we knew we were going to grow the number of employees. We made this announcement at our annual leadership conference to our, you know, 300 top leaders and we thought these 300 leaders were going to be handing us our resumes. They'd pile up on the podium and they'd say, hire me, hire me. Um, quite the opposite happened. We actually had the bulk of these volunteers looked at us and said, please do not make this a full-time job because I love what I'm doing, but it's just a piece of my life. I understand yeah. I have a family at home. I've got a job I'm fulfilled in. But this little sliver that you provide me in the five hours a month or the 20 hours a week, whatever that person engages in, you know, in this self kind of yeah. service buffet of, of well-being, um, we'd be taking away from their ability to, to maintain this, this wellness yes. that they lost when they took off their uniform. So, you know, we, we find that if we can supply them and train them and put the standards in place, the volunteers are off and running and we really don't have to be a part of it at that point. It's them doing what they love to do. And because of the training and because of everything they've leveraged, they do it well, they do it safely, and they do it with compassion and empathy. What are some of the things that you guys are doing from a leadership standpoint, you know, to, to bring forth such a healthy culture? Um, I think, you know, at its core, it's, you know, we like to say adults only. You have to have adult conversations. Yeah. You have to be able to, you know, have that, that feeling of um, being able to talk to someone and, and have the hard conversation and also be, be good about maintaining the, the artifacts and the history and the process and the kind of the culture that allows it to become this flywheel of, of wellness. You know, everyone is a stakeholder in the culture. And if you can give everybody a little piece of it and ownership of it, it becomes a self-correcting organization, hopefully, and one that grows in a positive manner. Um, the other thing that you do is, um, you know, you have to measure, you have to understand it. Yeah. We do things, we've been really lucky with some of our partners to be able to bring a lot of commercial practices into our organization. We use net promoter scores from, from executing um, surveys, you know, on the mm. front side, the back side, the customers, um, to understand whether or not we're doing things correctly. We have feedback loops because you have to make those corrections really early or that marketplace that I talked about earlier um, begins to fall apart and isn't nearly as effective and efficient as it could be. So a lot of it is just measure and act, measure and act. Measure and act. I mean, smart. You know, if you don't measure, you don't know what you're doing. Don't right. know what direction you're going. Yeah, exactly. All right. I mean, I'm just so impressed with Team Rubicon and the reach that you guys have and, you know, how you are, you know, redeploying the veteran population and giving them that sense of purpose again outside of the uniform to go in and make a difference after disaster. Um, I'm excited to have Team Rubicon in the Rise Up Network and very excited to see what's, what's to come for you guys. What are some parting words for our listeners or things that you'd like folks to know? Gosh, for, for your listeners, I'd, I'd start by saying thank you. You know, if, if you're even listening to this, you've obviously got some interest in, in being a servant leader. And my hope is that we've, we've passed some, some lessons or best practices. I'd encourage you to check out our website at uh, www.teamrubiconusa.org. Um, we would love to have in any capacity you check us out. And we, again, we have a, a large population of civilian volunteers. Um, and, and we'd love for you to invest in our vision. We'd love for you to invest in an organization that hopes that they can have positive impact across the world uh, and make a difference. And we'd love for you to um, support us, follow us, uh, be advocates or evangelists for what we do. Uh, thanks for your support. And, and certainly we'd also welcome, um, you know, if you have any, any suggestions, networks, et cetera, feel free to reach out. Absolutely. So folks, you're going to want to write down or put in your phone right now, teamrubiconusa.org. 
and go check it out. See if it's something that is pertains to you or resonates with you, or maybe there's someone you know and you can pass it on. But either way, this is a fantastic organization that is making a difference here domestically and abroad, and it's something that you want to learn about. Art De La Cruz, thanks for being on the show, sir. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. AM 1170, The Answer. Hi, Grandma. What's for dinner? Hey, honey, I'm making stew tonight. Ooh, can Nina come over? I'm not sure about our new friend. I wonder if there's been any drinking going on. Alcohol at her age can lead to so many bad things. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! This is hard. She's so young. But I know I need to talk to her about it now before someone tries to give her alcohol. If anyone ever does offer you a drink, I want you to say no. I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. Really? I promise, Grandma. I love you too. Okay, how about tasting this stew and telling me what you think? Mmm. Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Whether you explore your national forests and grasslands by car, motorcycle, four-wheel drive, or by an all-terrain vehicle, please remember that all-terrain travel doesn't mean all-terrain. Forest Service land managers have recently created detailed maps to show off-highway vehicle enthusiasts and others where they may legally operate motor vehicles. Remember to travel only on routes designated as open to motor vehicles, as shown on motor vehicle use maps available at Forest Service offices or by visiting respectedaccess.org. Click on the motor vehicle maps link located on the home page. Follow these motor vehicle use maps to help keep national forests and grasslands in a healthy condition and to maintain public access to these beautiful backcountry landscapes. This message is brought to you by the nonprofit organization Tread Lightly, the USDA Forest Service, and this station, who remind you that respected access is open access. Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Rise Up Radio. I'm your host, James Carmody. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. This is episode 126. We have now had over 300 great guests on. We have another amazing guest in studio. This is uh, a gentleman whose time is in high demand, and uh, he is a great leader here. Rear Admiral Yancey Lindsay is the commander of Navy Region Southwest. Sir, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Great to be here. Yeah, we, you know, we're excited to have you, and uh, we're going to talk about a lot of great stuff. But before we do that, how did you get to where you are? You know, Where, where are you from? What's your background? Well, uh... I don't know. That's, that's kind of a long story, so I'll try to truncate it. we got plenty of time. <laughs> I'll try to truncate it. But uh, I uh, originally born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, did go to school in California up at uh, the Bay Area at okay. UC Berkeley. I was fascinated with guys in that grew up in the desert and want to go to the Navy. Yeah, well, I, I didn't get into Berkeley on my academic prowess. I could play football halfway decent, so that's, uh, that's how I got through the uh, admissions, folks. What position did you play? I uh, played tight end. Cool. Well, the position I played the most was left out, but <laughs> tight end when I did get on the field. Uh, and then uh, as I was nearing the end of my degree, I had a friend back in Phoenix that was going to Arizona State University, applied to the Navy, and I was home for Christmas, and he said, hey, you can, they'll let you fly airplanes. Just go down there, you take this test, and you sign up. And I'm like, oh, really? That there sounds like kind of cool. And so I went down, signed up, and uh, I guess about five months, five and a half months later, I was in Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, Florida, there you go. Going through Aviation Officer Canada School, just like Officer and a Gentleman, doing push-ups with a Marine drill instructor hosing me down, yelling at me. Yelling at you. you know. yeah, it's just like the movies. Okay, and then, and then at what, what point do you actually get your call sign? Uh, you know, that probably came at the end of Aviation Officer Candidate School, and obviously based on my voice uh, from, uh, from Lurch from the Adams family. Folks, he is a tall gentleman. Yeah, it was, it was fun. So call signs can, uh, can be kind and they can not be kind. I'm fortunate to have one that's fairly kind. <laughs> yes, I understand. So want to hear, you know, what have you, you know, what have you been most proud of? in recent years, your work with the Navy? Uh, 
really is probably the reason I stayed in the Navy. I mean, I enjoyed flying airplanes. It's what I did the majority of my time yeah. uh, as a Navy pilot. But what really kept me in the Navy was just about every day in some way, shape, or form, you can help somebody achieve a personal or a professional goal in some way. You can, you can, you can support them. You can coach. You can mentor. And so it's that people side of the Navy that probably kept you know, that kind of floats my boat for lack of a better analogy. And, uh, and that's really why I've stayed in the Navy as long as I have. What year is this for you? I just went over 32 years in May. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that long. I know it looks like I joined right out of kindergarten. Doesn't yeah. It? I mean like yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for our civilian listeners out there, explain, you know, what is a rear admiral? What are, I mean, what is your responsibilities include? Well, my responsibilities as the commander of Navy Region Southwest, I'm the, I'm the higher headquarters for the Navy bases in the Southwest region. Those are the six Southwest U.S. states, uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and uh, California. And we have uh, 10 Navy installations in that area, nine in California, and then one up in Western Nevada. And I'm the higher headquarters for those, those bases. And really what that means is we basically run the infrastructure mm. for the Navy. We run the, the installations, the bases. And so the folks who are flying the airplanes, sailing the ships, submarines, Navy Special Warfare, what, what have you, those are our customers. Those people don't work for us, but we support them. And, and I, the analogy I draw is a, a city manager. In the same way, the residents of a city don't work for the city manager, but that city manager provides critical, important, timely services to those residents, whether it's a police force, a fire, a fire and emergency services folks, maintain roads, infrastructure, utilities, you name it. So we're, we're very similar to what a city manager does for a city, but we do it for Navy bases and in our area of responsibility. Got it. I'm very clear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, also, you know, expand on what our listeners need to know about the Navy in our region. Like, you know, what is the Navy up to and what is the Navy responsible for? Sure. Uh, the Southwest region is critical to our Navy, really in our Marine Corps and for, uh, really our entire military. Uh, there's unique, uh, facilities and ranges, uh, in this area of the country that uh, don't exist anywhere else and that we have to have and we have to use and operate in to prepare our men and women uh, for the deployments and really ultimately for combat. And so that's why this region is so important uh, to our military. When you think about it, we have offshore areas. So we have ocean, we have subsurface or under the ocean. Yep. Uh, we have fantastic... Uh, uh, air ranges, um, and how and, long air and, ranges? Just oh, I, I mean, hundreds of thousands of acres. Uh, our base in China Lake, which is in Ridgecrest, uh, California, just just outside Ridgecrest, is a million acres. Wow! And so you need that kind of space for the modern weapons and the modern aircraft uh, and modern warfare. Mm -hmm. We do uh, not only training and pre prepare our people for deployment, but we do a lot of research, development, test, and evaluation of new weapon systems, of new aircraft, of, of, uh, of uh, new systems that, uh, that we need to, you know, be competitive in this, uh, in this new world that we're, that we're emerging into. So, so that's why the region is, is so important is because it combines that offshore area with these um, air ranges and in conjunction with the land ranges as well. And it's all in one big package. And, and that really doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. And so that's why you see so many, uh, not only Navy and Marine Corps forces in this, in this area of the country come to train, but you see other, other uh, services come as well, the Army and the Air Force, and even some of our foreign partners will come and train with Coast us Coast Guard. Sure, Coast Guard as well, yes, sir. Share a little bit about, you know, how, what does that collaboration look like? Uh, between us and the Coast Guard? Or Coast just Guard, all the other services? Any of Coast Guard, Marine Corps, Air Force? Yeah, well, I think it's... It's a indication of really how we'll fight, if uh, and really how we operate, uh, even outside of combat, is as a joint team. And so every service brings uh, capability, some unique to that service. And and when you think about the the tough environments that we put our men and women in uniform in uh, overseas, uh, the things we ask them to do, it's important that uh, our forces fight as a joint unit 
and they come together and they complement one another. And we don't have some of the issues we've had, you know, in the past where, where we're competing for space, but we come together as a joint team and, and we're able to, uh, to function that way. And that's why it's important if we're going to operate that way overseas that we're able to train that way and, and why our, our ranges and our at-sea areas and, and those things that are in the southwest region are so important to our military. You know, it's, it's San Diego in the southwest is a special region in that regard, and, and I love seeing the collaboration. It's, it, it's mandated. It's required. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I, I hear the collaboration across the different branches, it's always positive. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a test to leadership. You know, you see things at a 20,000-foot view. Right. And, and we want to we set our folks up for success. And, and many of the operations uh, that we do overseas, again, require – require capabilities that all of our services have. And so we, we have to bring those together uh, to be most effective. And we've had some, you know, some issues in the past, not in the recent past, but in the distant past that, that reemphasize the need for, for joint training and, uh, and joint operations. And so it's, I think it's, a, it's one of our strengths as a, as a U.S. military because you see some other countries have a difficult time blending together their Navy and their Army and their Air Force to fight as a, a cohesive unit. That's something that we don't have a, you know, we have our issues, right? Sure. And so there's seams and gaps, but, but we do a pretty good job of, uh, of overcoming those and, and, um, and mitigating those to fight as a joint unit. And again, I think that's one of the, the strengths of our U.S. military. What do you see, you know, going forward for our region? Uh, Growth, increased yeah. operations. I know your <laughs> listeners. Here we got a few ships coming. Your listeners probably don't want to hear that because, uh, well, depending, some of them may want to hear that. Um, I think the majority of our listener yeah. base does. It's it's just because this area is so unique, yeah, um, and so important to our to our military. But we are growing. Uh, your Navy's going to grow in the San Diego uh, Metro San Diego area by about eleven more ships and probably thirteen thousand or so more. Uh, sailors and their families between now and about 2025 that what's that from like a frame of reference like what is it currently well we're right now we have 59 ships stationed here okay so that's going to take us up to about 70 20 percent or so right and and uh and that may increase even beyond that because uh that's that's based on uh uh kind of prior to the new administration coming into uh Mm-hmm. in the office. Yep. And so we may even see an increase beyond that. If, if Congress appropriates the funds to build additional ships, mm-hmm. well, San Diego is one of the obvious uh, places to station those. And so that's, that's what we current know, currently know, but uh, it could be more. And, and, you know, that's one of our challenges is to accommodate that growth here because, as you know, San Diego is a challenging place to live uh, from affordable housing standpoint, from a cost standpoint. So we want to make sure these men and women that uh, we're moving here, we can take care of them. Absolutely. I mean, that, and that is a challenge. You it know, is. I mean, we do have a housing challenge and it's like, okay, what is, what is a cost-effective solution to that? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Well, folks, you are listening to Rear Admiral Yancey Lindsay, Commander of Navy Region Southwest on Rise Up Radio. Stick around. We'll be back in a few. AM 1170. The answer. San Diego. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
host, James Carmody. This is episode 126. We have commander of the Navy Region Southwest, Rear Admiral Yancey Lindsay in the show. And we have been trying to track this gentleman down for about two years. Jennifer, great job being persistent. I'm, I'm Yancey, right, welcome back. I'm, I'm right here. You're here. I'm right here. Of course, I've been standing at attention since you were playing the Navy the Navy song, so now I'm sitting back down in front of the microphone. Folks, it's, it's, it's extremely impressive. I'm very nervous. He's doing a great job, making me uncomfortable. But literally, this man is the Navy mayor. He's responsible for the Southwest region, you know, and as he kind of put it, it's kind of like, you know, it's like a city manager, right? And he has a lot, he has thousands of people under his charge, and he's got to provide the service and the operations to fulfill on what's needed and wanted. Um, I want to talk about, you know, some of the changes, what's going on Broadway and, you know, some of these other projects that are kind of in the pipeline. Sure. Uh, well, Broadway's been in the pipeline for, forever for many years. Uh, California is not the easiest place to do uh, business sometimes, and we've yeah. seen that in the Broadway uh, complex. But we're in a good place there. We broke ground. Uh, Manchester Pacific Gateway broke ground here a few weeks ago, and they're tearing down kind of the final building on yeah. the corner of uh, Pacific Highway and Broadway. That's that's essentially down. And uh, starting about one August, they're going to uh, excavate the entire site, uh, about 12, 13 acres of the 15 acres the Navy owns there. And they'll start to, uh, you'll start to see some things come out of the ground. Uh, first one is the, the government administrative facility. That's the new 17-story uh, building they're going to build for the Navy. That's the in-kind consideration they're providing us for the rights for the long-term lease to develop the entire site. So... We're excited. We've been in a uh, 1920s era warehouse that was converted into a office building. That's what I'm currently in. And it'll be nice to get in a modern 21st century building, which better matches the quality men and women we have working uh, in the Navy region. I think you guys deserve that. Well, I don't know if we deserve it, but man, is it going to be nice. (laughs) We're we're really looking forward. It'll take about three to four years to build our building. Three to four years, okay. Uh, the entire development, I think, is more like maybe six to eight years. There's going to be okay. a couple of hotels, residential, commercial space there. Really cleaning up uh, a piece of San Diego's uh, uh, front front. Does that pretty step. much go from you know just adjacent to the Hyatt? South down to Chula Vista, essentially? Well, we're bordered by Harbor. We're right across the street from the Midway Museum. Yep. Uh, so we're, we're bordered by Harbor Drive, Pacific Highway, and Broadway. Yep. And, uh, and then with it. With our with the Broadway complex uh, redevelopment, and then what they're going to do at uh, Seaport Village, I think it's going to really be nice down there on the waterfront in San Diego. Yeah, you're thinking three, three to four years for something, six to eight for others. Yeah, three, three to three to four years for the Navy building. That's the first one to be built. Yep. Uh, it's going to be kind of on the back across from the Embassy Suites, where the Embassy Suites is there. And then the others will take some other time to come out of the ground. But I think six, eight, ten years, I don't know. I'm not the developer. <laughs> I have to talk to uh, to the Manchester Pacific Gateway folks. But, um, yeah, I think I think ten years from now that will all be done. And It's exciting. You know, I, I mean, as a San Diegan, it's exciting to see what's to come, you know. You, you kind of look at that spot and you're like, how are we doing the Navy like this? It kind of looks a little... Hodgepodge. Well, it's creative and innovative. You know, we're leveraging. In 1920. Yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> well, we're leveraging the, the, the value, an asset we have to yeah. get something that we can't afford. We don't have $150 million to build a 17-story building. But by leveraging our, yeah. our one of our assets, we're going to get that. Um, it, there's a really interesting uh, fire station in Washington, D.C. that the District of Columbia, they had a piece of land. They, working with, I think it's Hyatt, I can't remember the, the hotel chain, but the fire station's in the bottom two floors and the hotel's above it. And so, awesome. so DC got a fire station they couldn't afford and an early childhood kind of uh, child development center, daycare thing. And Hyatt got what they want. I think it's Hyatt, got what they want and the district didn't have to pay for it. So it's kind of creative, innovative things that I think yeah. uh, the government, uh, in my case, the Navy, we need to look for those opportunities. Yeah, I mean, share a little more about these IGSAs that you know you mentioned. Right, intergovernmental support agreements. That's a new authority that uh, was just pushed down about a year ago to uh, to my level. And what it allows us to do is go out and work with uh, local municipalities, whether that uh, government government entities, for lack of a better term. So county, city, state, uh, school districts, universities. 
uh, you know, Sandag, those types of organizations. And if they can provide us or perform a service on a Navy installation cheaper than we can contract or do it ourselves, then I can just sign an agreement and we can start paying that city to perform. And it runs the it runs the gamut from you know lifeguards, water testing, uh, street sweeping. I mean, you name it. And we are open for business on that. Uh, Marine Corps up in Barstow just did one for water testing. Literally, they're going to pay about a quarter. They're going to pay the city of Barstow about a quarter of what it was costing them to contract to have that water testing done. So, so those are the opportunities we're looking for. And uh, if there's any cities or towns or the state, whoever's listening, call me up. Let's, let's go for it. Let's do some business. Let's do it. There we go. If you can save a buck or two, why not? Yes, sir. And, and there's another good example up in Ventura County, uh, heavy, heavy vehicle maintenance. We were shipping all those vehicles down to from uh, Ventura County down to the San Diego area to do maintenance. Now the county of Ventura County uh, does that heavy vehicle maintenance for us. Saves time, saves cost. They like it, expands their operation. It gives them uh, more capacity, more scope, breadth. So it's a win-win. Win-win is right. Sure. Talk about, you know, want to talk about people for a second. You know, we want to talk about families that we're impacting here, you know, specifically family readiness. Sure. Yeah, family. That's a big, big part of our job. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we we uh, we call it the fleet fighter in the family. Mm. We support the fleet. Uh, we support the fighter, but we also support the families, uh, especially when their service members are deployed. Uh, here in San Diego, we have just over nine thousand military homes uh, that are mostly outside the fence lines in the community. Yeah. And so that's a big part of our. As housing families, a big part of our business. We also have child development centers. We have fleet and family support centers uh, that provide a range of services to families, uh, from counseling to, I mean, you name it, uh, job search. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. So, so family readiness and supporting families is a big part of what we do. And we also have a big part of our operation is morale, welfare, and recreation. So we run all the golf courses, the bowling alleys, uh, and all those types of services recreational type services on bases. And so, so when it comes to family readiness, that's, that's, that's one of my concerns when we grow here in San Diego, because yeah. I don't want to just dump these people in San Diego and say, figure it out Good luck. because, you know, housing's challenging, you know, uh, finding places for daycare child. And that's really a, a, a community challenge. The Navy has that as well, obviously, but it's really more yeah. of the community challenges is child development centers and daycare. But I, it's been one of my priorities is, is working not only inside the Navy, but with the, with the local communities of, Hey, how are we going to address this? How are we going to make sure these uh, men and women can, uh, you know, th- they don't have to worry about these things when we, when we transfer them here and, and ask them to serve. Sure. And can you share, you know, a little bit of the specifics about that, what you're seeing, whether it's from housing or from, you know, child and daycare? Yeah, we, we've talked about it quite a bit on uh, some public venues I've been in, um, and one thing we're doing it from a housing standpoint is we've done a, our own study to see, hey, are there some areas behind our fence lines where we may have space we could build additional homes? Mm. And we found one or two of those. It's going to be incremental. It's not, you know, thousands of homes. Right. <laughs> not going to flip a switch right. and we got 20,000 homes. Exactly. Uh, but we may have a couple of pockets of, uh, of uh, real estate where we can build, you know, maybe 100 or 200 homes, which will help. Any, any amount will help. Uh, but we're also, as we talk with uh, folks in the community, you know, are there uh, apartment complexes or are there developers that want to partner with us to find uh, creative ways to maybe uh, generate some more Navy or military housing? Um, and so that's, from a housing perspective, that's, that's something we've been working on. From a child development center perspective, uh, that's, more, that's more difficult because we operate and I think we're world-class operation when it comes to child development centers and daycare. But it's well, the hard thing is getting the facilities, mm. you know, the, the the buildings to to put these yeah. these operations in. And so, here uh, several months back, we put out a uh, request for information just to the local community, and we said, "Hey, hey, you know, you name the company, you name the school district. If you can provide the facility, we can operate, maintain it." you know, accredit it. Yeah, we'll run it. And then you provide the facility, we, we operate it and you get some of the slots and we get some of the slots because the facility is the tough thing we're having a hard time with. Yeah. Um, 
And so we've had some interest in that, not as much as I would have liked to, but uh, we're still hoping that there might be an opportunity there. And we're looking for other creative ways to get after this. Right, right now we have almost 3,000 people on our childcare waiting list wow. to get into Navy childcare. Yeah. Um, now that doesn't mean all those people don't have childcare. They may have found some out in town because right. our childcare is generally less expensive than what you have to pay out in town. And so, uh, but that's a lot of folks that want to get, you know, you take advantage of one of the services that we provide, but we just don't have the capacity to provide it to the degree that the need is there. So, so anyway, that's kind of from a housing and a yeah. childcare. Those are kind of two of the things that we're, that we're looking at. Yep. Other bigger challenges that you're seeing kind of on the horizon that you guys are working on? Uh, just, just if we grow beyond these 11 ships, yeah. I mean, they, you know, Naval Base <laughs> San Diego down there. I 70 mean, ships. We've got 13 piers. Um, there's only so many places to park things. So you might start seeing some things we haven't seen since maybe World War II where we breast ships. Those are ships that are side by side. Yeah. Maybe we anchor a ship or two occasionally out right. in, the, in the middle of the bay just because we were to park it. Or ships being over at NAS North Island or maybe at the submarine base at Point Loma that you don't hit normally see these types of ships just because we're so full, you know, yeah. and we just don't have the capacity because, you know. We can grow ships, but it's really hard to grow infrastructure. Coast Guard has the same challenge with their new ships. They're having a hard time finding places to park them. Yeah. What are, you know, any any requests, you know, talking to the listeners now in San Diego, the Rise Up community, you know, requests of people. What should people be aware of in, in what can they what what can they do? What should they be aware of? Well, I, I just, first of all, let me thank the San Diego community. This is a wonderful, patriotic, supportive place to be stationed. You do wonderful things for our men and women in uniform and their families each and every day. So thank you for your support. Thank you for what you do and, and for, for providing such a wonderful place for us to live and, and to be stationed. So, it, you know, just keep supporting. Uh, it's really as simple as that. Keep loving on, on your military. Fantastic. Well, Rear Admiral Yancey Lindsay, thank you for all that you do. I mean, this is a Navy town. This is America's finest city. And I just, I appreciate you being in the Rise Up Network. And thank you for everything. God bless you. Thanks, James.